Our sermon question this morning is this. Why do we call the Bible the Word of God? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I've heard this phrase my whole life. I've said it for years, and I never once gave a second thought to it. I mean, it's a holy book that records God speaking to humanity. Why not call it the Word of God? But this question is a deceptively tricky one, one whose answers are more like a symphony than a melody. Deeper within this question, we find others, of course. How do we read the Bible? How do we know what we know about God? What is revelation? What is the word of God? And so we shall begin with the words of Scripture, a very nice place to start. In the beginning, as we read in Genesis, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. But God spoke, and there was light. God spoke, and there was sea and sky. God spoke, and there was dry land. And so the first thing that we learn about the word of God is that it is the source of all that was made. This word is the creative spark that brought everything into existence. As the narrative continues, God forms human beings from the dirt and comes into relationship with us. God speaks, and we come to know who we are. God speaks in covenants and commandments, and we come to know how God would have us live. It is not surprising, then, that another important meaning of the word of God is revelation from God and, later on, prophecy. God pierces the veil that separates us from eternity and connects with us. That is the very record of our Holy Scripture. In the Old Testament, the sign of such a revelation is the phrase, the word of God or the word of the Lord. And if you go looking for this phrase in Scripture, you will find no small number of people that the word of the Lord came to. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Balaam, that was the one who tried to curse in the donkey's story. Samuel, David, Nathan, Shemaiah, Gad, Solomon, an unnamed man of God. Ahijah, Jehu, Zimri, Elijah, Micaiah, Elisha, Jonah, Hilkiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, yes, two Jonahs, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and John the Baptist. They did not just hear the word. The Bible tells us that they received it and that they shared it. God's word is active, and in human history, God has been busy talking. And as one example, we have that passage that I just read from 1 Kings. We can see that Elijah had pity on the widow who had offered him a room in her house. Her son was sick, and she prayed to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the child was revived and made well. It was a miracle from God. And in response to this, the widow said, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And so here, the word of the Lord is more than receiving simple prophecies and and carry them forward. It was also about bringing blessings and miracles born of compassion. 
Now you might have noticed from that long list that I read before of people who received the word of God that except for John the Baptist, everyone mentioned in it was someone in the Old Testament. Now that is not to say that God stopped speaking. Humans just started writing about God speaking differently. In the New Testament, the word is often a reference to preaching or teaching by Jesus and those in the early church. In the parable of the sower, for example, where Jesus talks about seed that falls on the path, seed that falls on rocky soil, and seed that falls on good soil, he later explains that that seed is the word of God. Jesus relates the word of God to belief in what God teaches and says that without belief, the word falls away from people. Jesus says that the word of God in good soil produces ones who, when they hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and open heart and bear fruit with patient endurance. When Jesus was teaching, his words were not already scripture. His words were recorded decades after his death, and so the word of God that came through Jesus was shared taught and passed down from person to person before it even found its way into our Bible. In various places in the New Testament, holding on to the word could just as easily mean keeping alive the words of Christ as keeping faith alive. Now given the many different ways that the Bible speaks about the word, it is not surprising that followers of Christ came to understand the meaning of the word of God, that expression, very differently. For example, in the year 100, it seems that Poppius of Heropolis, thought that'd be fun to say, that was very fun to say, Poppius of Heropolis thought that the word of God in the New Testament only referred to the things that Jesus said. Not the narrative around them, just the red-letter stuff, which probably makes him the very first ever red-letter Christian. Then there was Ignatius of Antioch, who in the year 107 became the first known martyr outside of what's recorded in Scripture. He was ready to face his death, but his church in Rome was trying to save him. He wrote to them that they should not speak up on his behalf. He said, if you remain silent about me, I shall become a word of God. But if you allow yourselves to be swayed by this love in which you hold my flesh, I shall again be no more than a human voice. For Ignatius, becoming a word of God meant imitating Christ, following him at any cost, even the cost of his own life. This idea that the Word of God was part of our lives' testimony, part of what we preached through everything that we did, it continued in the church. One of the great church fathers, Irenaeus, spoke of preaching the Word of God in the late second century. He wasn't speaking about reading scripture out specifically, but about preachers telling stories that they had heard firsthand from followers of Jesus. Can you imagine that? These these might even have included stories that never made it into scripture, that firsthand experience. This idea of the word of God as teaching, preaching, revelation, and prophecy continued down the decades in the writings of the church. Every once in a while, someone took a unique view on it. 
like a Christian mystic from the late 13th, early 14th century named Meister Eckhart. He's once quoted as saying, every creature is full of God and is a book about God. Every creature is a word of God. If I spend enough time with the tiniest creature, even a caterpillar, I would never have to prepare a sermon. The notion that revelation still comes to us through creation is not a new one at all. Now, because we are Protestants and proud of it, the democratization of scripture is a big deal for us. Everyone should have access to the Bible. Many people, even before the Reformation formally started, fought so that the Bible could be translated into common languages and made available to everyone. But their writers, the writings still didn't directly refer to the Bible as the Word of God. In 1382, John Wycliffe translated the first complete Bible in English. He wrote in defense of his project that it was not heresy to translate the Bible. Rather, those who condemn the translation must also condemn the Holy Ghost who gave tongues to Christ's apostles so that they could speak the word of God in all languages that ordained of God under heaven. The word for Wycliffe was revelation from God like the ones that the apostles received so that they could preach the word on Pentecost. Getting into the Reformation time period, the word is still understood in different ways. And not all of them were noble. Here we take a little detour to King Henry VIII, our favorite king for the scandal and shock. But in 1539, it was King Henry who authorized the first complete English Bible to be released to the public. Over 9,000 copies were printed by 1541. I can't even imagine. In the front of each one of these Bibles was a picture that showed the king surrounded by subjects with Christ looking on from behind a cloud in the top right corner. Henry is portrayed like Moses, receiving the divine wisdom. And in his hand is a sword that reads verbum dei, in Latin, the word of God. Henry wanted every single citizen to know that he was setting himself up as the supreme head of the church, not the Pope, Henry. He would be the conduit of God's word, and he would hold the final say about God's word in his kingdom. Even though he communicated this notion of the word of God through the distribution of scripture, it still echoes with a larger claim to power and religious authority over every one of his subjects. Not surprisingly, the reformers in England and elsewhere had a little problem with a human being setting himself up as the sole interpreter of scripture, as I think we would today. They fought for scripture alone to determine matters of Christian faith and practice. Not like Henry, who claimed that right for himself, and not like the Catholic Church, whose spiritual foundation included the traditions of the church as well as the foundation of scripture. It is difficult to say exactly who, how, or when, but it was during this time that the reformers took back the word of God and applied it to scripture as the sole source of revelation about God and guide for their lives. In 1566, Heinrich Bullinger penned the Second Helvetic Confession, which is part of our book of confessions. The very first sentence, you know it's important, it was the first sentence in there reads, 
We believe and confess the canonical scriptures of the holy prophets and apostles of both testaments to be the true word of God. We made it, you guys. That is the best answer I have to the question of how we came to call the Bible the word of God. It was not easy to find. <laughs> now, after all of that history, the very astute among you will have noticed that I left a very important word out. One from the Bible, no less. Jesus, as the word incarnate, as we have it from the first chapter of John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. Describing Christ as the word of God occurs only in the first chapter of John and in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, where Christ is also called faithful and true as a title, not as adjectives. And he comes riding on a white horse to judge the earth in righteousness. Both of these depictions of Jesus are mystical and mysterious, not exactly the same friend that we have in other images of him. And so this leads us back to our holy celebration today. Jesus transfigured on a mountain. And now he took a small portion of his disciples and went up a mountain, just the four of them. When suddenly Jesus started to look different to them. His face was bright as the sun and his clothes were awash in light. And Moses and Elijah appeared to talk to Jesus. So what do you do if you're Peter, face to face with the greatest heroes of your faith? What do you do when eternity touches your heart and you suddenly know that somehow, however impossible it might seem, God is standing right in front of you and talking to Moses and Elijah, no less? If you're Peter, you pitch a tent, or at least you offer to. You want to make camp and move in and stay there forever because you know unshakably that this right here, right now, is a holy moment. And a voice from heaven echoes the words from Jesus' baptism, this is my son and I love him very dearly. I am pleased with him. Listen to him. When we truly encounter God, we turn into idiots. And I really don't mean that to be insulting, because there is nothing that we can say or do, no words that we could ever find to tell someone what just happened. We can't create this experience or give it to somebody else. All we can do is receive it, this holy word of beauty and truth. We didn't cause God to create the world after all. We can't choose when God speaks a word of hope or challenge into our lives. As our reading from 2 Peter reminds us, no prophecy ever came by human will, but men and women moved by the Holy Spirit from God. We don't control God. We can't force a miracle because we're desperate. We cannot unite with Christ by the power of our own will, and we cannot bend the scripture to produce what we want alone. And yet the word is active in all these ways, in all these places. Is it any wonder that the church speaks in so many voices 
before the awesome glory of the Word. We need as many channels to God and Christ and Spirit as we can get. And God makes a way for us to remain in touch, to remain connected, no matter how distant or detached we might feel. The moments where we feel true communion with the divine are anchors of our lives of faith. And so we listen for the word, however it comes to us. And we look for the vision of the word incarnate. We look to expand our lives by letting Christ in more and more. But we know our limitations. When we peer into the unknowable and glimpse the glory of Christ, we are like those who look too closely at a tapestry with countless threads woven throughout. If we're lucky, we can pick out a small shape, a lip, a sash, an eye. But most of what we see is a glimpse at how God saturated that one strand. And my friends, we are called together so that we can see together and speak together visions of, and words of life. In describing the threads before each one of us, we can grasp more and more of the wonder that is Christ, because in him is life, and the life is the light of all people. Amen.